0: i am going to direct your attention this morning to 2 Kings, chapter 18 is where we will start, 2 Kings chapter 18. And as you're going there, uh, I'll, give you a, I'll give you a minute or two, uh, we are now through the Christmas holidays, right? Yeah, we're, we're through, we've made it, we, you, you have arrived and now we're looking towards a new year. Year 2019, as we look back and remember 2018, we're looking forward to what 2019 is going to be. And this is a time of year where we tend to make these resolutions. Has been once said that resolutions are just there to be broken, right? But we we look to make you know resolutions, changes in our lifestyles. We make choices to do better this coming year than what we did in our past year. For for a lot of us, you know, some of us, it's you're just doing better at work, doing better at home. So a lot of us want to lose weight, want to get fit. And this morning, I stepped on my scale in the bathroom, and as after I'd gotten ready, and it read 218 pounds. I was like, my goodness, I think it's crazy that a company would make a suit that weighed 20 pounds. <laughs> and uh, it was just a crazy thought. But however. You know, I do believe in setting goals, I do believe in writing them down, I do believe in having a goal in mind and a vision to work towards and to making smaller goals that will bring us to that larger goal of, of success, but today we're going to be looking and discussing a challenge that can be met by accomplishing a few goals by making a few different changes. And in doing this we're going to start by looking at King Hezekiah, now looking at King Hezekiah, he was a good king, he was a king who reigned over Judah for 29 years. And the Bible tells us a little bit of something about King Hezekiah. So if you will just be with me here in 2 Kings chapter 18, starting in verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes or in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image and broke in pieces the bronze serpent serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense and they called it Neheshtan. In verse 5, it says, He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor were there before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. The Lord was with him. He prospered wherever he went, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. And looking at what we just read there, what we can find and what we see and what we can think is that, man, this is a man that the Lord truly blessed. The Lord prospered him, gave him many victories over his enemies. And as we read this brief summary of his life, you know, one could say, my, what a wonderful and productive life that Hezekiah had. But in the blessings and the, and the things that, um, uh, that we just read about Hezekiah, it's important for us to understand and know that Hezekiah's life was not without trouble. It wasn't without some really tough circumstances and heartache. You know, he faced many trials in the course of his life, and only the Lord knows everything that he faced. All we know is what was actually recorded in the books that we read in the Old Testament about King Hezekiah but it's certain that he didn't accomplish these great victories without much difficulty. It was in his 14th year of his reign, around age 39, my age, that he was faced with two great trials, probably the greatest trials he had ever faced in, at the time as he was king. The king of Assyria, Sennacherib, he came against Judah and their fortified cities. If we look at, um, at chapter 18 and verse Thirteen and in the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. So his his kingdom is under attack at this point. Now, um, uh, the king of Assyria he is no joke. Okay, he is someone who's been going through the lands, he's been conquering one kingdom after the other, and now he's got his crosshairs on Judah, and this is Hezekiah's kingdom. But also at the very same time this is going on, Hezekiah is very, very ill. He has a terminal illness. And we see that when we go to chapter 20. If you read through chapters 18 and 19, you see how the Lord handled the issue with the king of Assyria and how things went about there. And then it goes back to to describe um, Hezekiah and his condition as all this is going through in Verse 20. It says, in those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. And then he turned his face toward the wall and he prayed to the Lord, saying, Remember now, O Lord, I pray how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and have done what was good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And it happened before Isaiah had come out to the middle court that the word of the Lord came to him saying, return to Hezekiah. The leader of my people, thus says the Lord God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears, surely I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add to your days fifteen years. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend the city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Then Isaiah said, Take a lump of figs, and he took it and laid it upon the boil, and he recovered. get a message like this to begin with in verse 1 Isaiah comes in and as you can imagine he's coming in probably to the bed of King Hezekiah as he's near death he's not feeling well very sick and he says set your house in order it's time to get things together because you will die you will not live you're not going to survive the thing that you are now struggling with this illness will overtake your life and as we see he at that point he just turns over and as you can imagine just not feeling well I'm sure we've all been in a position where we just don't feel well things are just not going good and you get bad news and all you can do is just kind of turn your face to the wall in bed and just pour your heart out well, that's where Hezekiah was at this moment he poured his heart out he said God said, remember me, you know how I had a loyal heart, how I walked before you, I did what was good in your eyes, and that's all he said, and then he wept bitterly. You know things were kind of shaky in his kingdom at this point i don 't know why that um, you know why he was any you know, upset, you know he had, he, had, he was the best king that they ever they'd ever had, and he was there was none that came after him after that, he had led the people as best that he could, but i I, I can only imagine that. He didn't want to leave the kingdom in the situation in which it was, so therefore he poured his heart out to God. And he wept bitterly before him. Now we see that obviously this brief prayer, it evidently touched the heart of God. Because the the word came before Isaiah even made it to the middle. In verse... um, in verse, in verse 4, it says, And it happened before Isaiah had gone out to the middle court that the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Look, go back and tell Hezekiah. I have heard his prayer. I have seen his tears. And tell him that he will be restored. He will be healed. Such a wonderful thing. And so many things that we can actually learn from this. But I want us just also understand, before we get into our message this morning, we must understand that God does not always heal our illness. He doesn't always take away our pains. And in many cases, we had to endure through those things. If we look at the Apostle Paul, he had a thorn in his flesh that he had asked God three times to remove, but however, God did not choose to remove that from him. Now Paul's, his, his, um, his thorn in his flesh, it wasn't a, a terminal illness. You know, Some people think it may have been his poor eyesight as he admittedly was having to write in large print. But God chose to leave that with Paul for whatever reason. He left that irritation in him. Maybe it caused him to be a better man. Maybe it caused him to be more dependent on God. But something we need to understand is that whenever we pray and we can, call, we can, we can pour our hearts out to God, and yes, we may be going through something really, really difficult, and maybe even on our deathbed facing the very same thing that Hezekiah did. When we pour our hearts out to God, we, will, we must trust him that we want his will to be done in our lives, regardless of what that might be. God's will may not be the thing for which we are asking. We must have an understanding when we go into what we're going to be discussing today. And there's so many things that we can learn about this in the text today. We can learn our lessons especially about prayer, how we have the privilege of going to the Almighty God and being able to make a petition before the throne, through His throne. We can understand the importance of it and the power of prayer and having that answered prayer when God does choose to I choose to answer the prayer for which we ask. But I want us to really focus in on something. As we're going into the year of 2019, a new year, what I want us to focus on is verse 1, where Isaiah the prophet came in, and he says, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you will die and not live. Set your house in order. The message of God for us today It's just that, set your house in order. Now why is it important to make sure that we have our house set in order? The reason why Isaiah came to Hezekiah was the fact that he was going to die and he needed to make sure he set his house in order. Now for all of us, and I'm sure we've all lived long enough and we've been able to witness different things and different scenarios, but it is certain that we one day will die. You know, I took a lot of time to research this, but everyone in history who has lived has died. Everyone it took a long time for me to figure that out, but that's true. You know, death is certain for each and every one of us. This this body is not meant to last for an eternity. This body will die one day, and that is one thing that is certain. The time is unknown. The how is unknown. We don't know. We don't hold that information. But what we do know for certain is that death truly is certain. Like I said, we don't know the time. We don't have the promise of 10 years. We don't have the promise of five years, one month, one week, one day, or even one hour. So that's why it's very important for us to make sure that we have our house in order. It's time to get our house in order because we don't know when that day will come. We don't know when the Lord will call us home, whether it's through death here or whenever he comes to take us away. We need to make sure that whenever that day happens, that our house is in order. We do know that it's appointed unto man once to die and after this, the judgment. So how do you answer the question, is your house in order? When we look at at Hezekiah, we see how he dealt with it. We see how he he turned over to the wall, and faced the wall, and wept bitterly, and prayed to God, and God answered his prayer. And God extended his life 15 years. But if we go fast forward to the New Testament, we see the Apostle Paul, whose life was not extended. But he was facing death, he was on death row. And this is a way he was able to respond whenever death came knocking on his door. He was in prison in Rome under the Emperor Nero, and he was set to be sentenced by, to death by beheading. And this is what he was able to pin to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 6, and 7. He says, For I am ready, He says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. Paul had his house in order, did he not? I mean, how, what life was, what life must we live in order to be able to look back and say, you know what, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I have done everything that I could possibly do. Everything is in order. I can be at peace now knowing that I'm going to my death. And then soon after that I will meet my Savior. So the question is, how can I set my house in order? How can I be ready for when that time comes? That's really what we're going to be talking about today. And as we're going into 2019, as we're going to make all these New Year's resolutions, the thing that we really need to resolve to do is to get our house in order if it is not. We need to make sure that we have things in order as if tomorrow was our last day as if Jesus Christ were coming tomorrow we need to make sure that we are getting things in order in preparation for that time. Now today we're going to be talking about the very basics of this topic of how to set your house in order. So the first thing I want us to see today is number one is make sure of your salvation. This is number one if you're going to get your house set in order this is the foundation This is the groundwork that has to be done before you can start building anything. If you're going to set your house in order, you must lay this down as your foundation. Make certain of your salvation. You know, many people say when they're asked the question, are you saved? You can get a variation of different answers. Well, I hope so, or I think so, or I'm trying to be. That's something that I'm really working on right now. Or even you'll get those, well, nobody can really know if they're saved or not. You can get those types of answers across the board. But the thing about it is, is we have to have an understanding that God is giving us the assurance of, his, of our salvation. He wants you to know that you are truly His so you, can, so you can confidently go throughout this world preaching the gospel that you have truly experienced on your own. We can truly know for, for sure that we belong to Him. The question is have you heard the gospel? Have you believed the gospel? In John chapter 5 and verse 24 it tells us this, most assuredly I say to you he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and shall not come into judgment but is passed from death unto life. Now don't be don't be mistaken whenever it comes to salvation It doesn't rest in how we feel. It doesn't doesn't rest in our emotions. It doesn't rest in the things that we think might be happening. But the gospel of Jesus Christ and the fact of our salvation is based on the facts of the gospel. It's factual, not emotional. If you've truly repented of your sins, seen yourself for who you are in light of who Christ is, and you've repented of your sins and you've trusted in the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross to pay your sin debt and to make you right with God, the Bible says very plainly that you truly belong to Him. Though you may not, a lot of us don't feel like I'm saved, well your feelings really don't matter in this, in this instance. The facts are what matters. The facts are is that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and if you are willing to surrender your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ and repent of your sins and trust in what he did for your salvation and trust in Jesus Christ alone, then you belong to the Father. That is where we are. So we must make sure of our salvation and and stand secure, stand firm on that. Believe what the Word of God tells you about your relationship with God. He wants you to have the assurance of your salvation. He wants you to be able to boldly live this life according to his will and purpose. He doesn't want you having to worry about if you are or you're not. God speaks clearly. Satan clearly is the author of confusion. If he can keep you confused about that, he can keep you dead in your tracks. He can stop you from serving because you'll be worried about this your entire time. What I would encourage each and every one of you today is if you don't know, if, you, if you've never trusted Christ as your personal Savior, there's no better time than now. And if you're going to get your house set in order, this is where it starts. And if you may be confused about it, I want you to understand, look at what the Word of God promises you. Rest in the promise that you have eternal life if you have believed on the name of Jesus Christ. Be sure of that. And if you are sure of your salvation, then you can be sure of that you're on your way to having your house set in order. Secondly, it's to follow the Lord in scriptural baptism. Now upon our exercise of faith in Jesus Christ, when we look at the death that paid for our sin, the burial that buried it away, and the resurrection that, that, uh, that Jesus Christ raised and God raised him from the dead, what we should do is to be obedient and profess this experience through baptism. Now, baptism will not in any way, shape, form, or form save anybody. It's not part of salvation. It never has been and it never will be. Okay? And a lot of people actually hold the security of their salvation in baptism, but it's not. Okay? Baptism is clearly a work that is for the saved for the saved child of God, to profess the fact that he is now a child of the king. It's a picture. It's a picture that represents the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a representation of your old life being put to death and you being raised to walk in a new life with Christ Jesus. It's just a way for you to tell the world, look, I'm saved and I'm proud to be saved. My sins are truly forgiven and I now belong to the family of God. I now have my eternity secured in Christ Jesus. That's what it is. It's a public profession of what has happened to you on the inside that gives you the ability to let it be made widely known and publicly announce that you now belong to the King of Kings. Baptism is that step of obedience to the Lord that sets you apart. It it lets people know the team for which you are playing. The way I tend to describe this is whenever you're watching a football game, how do you tell the difference in the teams? Depends on what jersey they're wearing. Depends on the the uniform that they have. Well, baptism is that uniform that you put on that says, look, I am now for team Jesus. That's the one for whom I am playing. That's the one I gave my life to. And I believe as, as those of us who have come to know Christ as our personal Savior, I think it's a very important step in obedience to be baptized, to let the world know that you have truly been changed as you are now living your life for the honor and glorifying of God the Father. So my, so my challenge to you is this, is that if you have been saved, but yet you've been putting off getting baptized, it's time to do it. Make that step. Make that profession before God's people and the world to let people know that you truly are a child of God up on salvation and professing that salvation experience through baptism well, what what we must do Christians is we must be willing to worship God faithfully and setting our house in order yes it requires us to be saved it requires us to actually belong to the kingdom of God secondly I believe that we should be baptized and professing and letting the world know that's the team that we're playing for and thirdly our lives should be a life of worship and we should worship God faithfully day in and day out. Now, God's purpose in our lives is to worship Him. Worship Him only. Him alone we serve. He is the one who is to receive honor and glory from His people, nothing else. Nothing else is worthy of our praise. Nothing else. You get what I'm saying? Nothing. Deserves our praise. Nothing deserves the worship that should be reserved for Christ. You know, believe it or not, I've been through some church services that just seem dead. Anybody ever experienced that? Okay. I mean, typically that's what you find. It's just dead. It's just not really, not a whole lot of worship. People are not, not really excited about the things that they're singing. They're not really excited about the Lord that they serve. They, they say it one way and then they express it in another. And outward expression is not always a, um, um, an identifier of what's actually happening on the inside. Don't, get, don't, don't misunderstand me there. You know, some people can sit and worship very quietly. There's, there's different types and there's different places that are appropriate for that. But it's almost like we see, and we go into churches, it's almost like people don't know how to worship, right? I don't think that's a problem. Because we can go through many different events in, in life and we can see that people truly do know how to worship. They know how to worship. Whenever you observe yourself or others, whenever you go to a concert, whenever you go to a football game or a basketball game, or you go to the sidelines at a golf match, and whenever you see your favorite performer or your athlete and they're walking by... People are doing everything they can in order to get in closer, to get a better look, fighting the crowds in order that they can maybe reach out and touch them, or maybe get a high five from their favorite athlete or performer. People have no problem worshiping. They certainly possess the ability to do so, but what I think the problem lies in is who or what we worship. You know, what gets us um, act, um, active? What really gets us excited? What is the one thing we really press, press towards the crowds in order to reach out and touch? Is it Jesus? Or are they other worldly things? You know, we worship all these people and these athletes. Yes, they're really talented. Yes, they can run really fast. And when you look at them, you say, like, whoa, wow, you threw the ball through the ring." if we pay millions of dollars to players to carry a pig bladder down a cow pasture. You know, you have grown men fighting over a football when they can all afford to go buy their own. Mm-hmm. Now, we enjoy these things, and in and of themselves, they're not sinful. They're not. But do they really warrant our worship? Do they really warrant that? Say, ooh, he ran that ball, Really? Fast And yes, it's an incredible feat. Look what God has done. And truly, look what he has done. And you, you go outside and it's just a good idea for us to take a look at what he has created out of nothing. That's where our worship really, truly should lie. And If our house is going to be set in order, we need to have things in proper perspective. Yes, we can enjoy life, we can enjoy the things here. Football, like I said, it's not a sinful thing. We enjoy watching football at our house. But what truly gets our worship? That's what we need to identify. And if it's not our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, then, however, we need to make sure we get our house in order. See, there there was a problem with this. If you look back at chapter 18 and verse 4, in verse 4, I mean, Hezekiah was dealing with this. He said, he had to remove the high places. And he broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image, and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. And he did it because they were worshiping it. They were, burning, they were burning incense to this. And you can imagine a new king coming in and destroying something that Moses made and set up. I've seen churches split because somebody donated a piano they wanted to get rid of. Imagine this we really got to keep things in perspective. Who or what truly gets our worship? If it's anything other than Jesus Christ alone, we need to make sure that we set our house in order. Hezekiah had it right. Look in, verse, look in chapter 19 and verse 19. It says, Now therefore, O Lord, God, I, I pray, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. He was praying this prayer because the, king, because the king of Assyria has actually come in and to attack him. And he's praying to God, like God deliver us. God, we want you to deliver us. God, we can't, we can't handle this army. This is a bigger force than we can handle. God, I want you to do it. But notice what he said after that. He says, he says that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God and you alone. He wanted God to take the victory, and he wanted God to get the credit, and God alone. We need, to give, we need to give credit where credit is due. Our worship needs to be solely focused on God and God alone. The scripture is inexhaustive on the topic of worship. Our goal in life should be to worship and to praise and honor God with our entire lives. We need to understand that worship is not just limited to church attendance or listening to preaching or personal Bible study or even praying before meals but it is truly a lifestyle that's, a, that's in submission and obedience to the very word of God let's bring us to our next point not only should we be worshiping God faithfully but we should be serving God faithfully now worship and service they go hand in hand you can't really have one without the other because true worship will always lead a person to obedience in the word of God Whenever it comes to serving, we've got to serve God by living a testimony as well as giving a testimony. We must be willing to live our lives in accordance to what God's will. We must be involved in the ministry of the church. This, is what, this means that we have to actively do something. Whatever God has called you to do, there's many different talents, many different abilities. Are we truly using that in this church in order to impact the world around us? but we are called to serve and to serve God faithfully if we're going to get our house in order. We need to worship the one true God and Him alone do we worship and we need to serve Him. How do we serve Him? We serve Him as the church to a lost and dying world to bring them and to reconcile them with a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now service means that we must be involved in the ministry of the church. You know we can have a great vision. We can have the greatest pastor, the greatest vision and the greatest goals to to meet in order to make these things happen. But without people getting involved, it just doesn't happen. It will never happen unless we all choose to get our house in order, we worship God faithfully, and we serve him faithfully. We must be willing to do so. Our ministry is the Great Commission. We are to go and to make disciples of all nations. That's the business that we are about. And we must be willing to do that and to serve God faithfully. And lastly, we need to walk with God faithfully. So what does it mean to walk with God? Well, first of all, walking faithfully with God means walking by faith. Walking by faith. Now, I may have, have, have illustrated this before, but walking by faith is not living your life blindfolded and just saying that God's just gonna take care of everything. It tr- it's true, God is sovereign, God knows everything. And he can work all things together for his good to those who love him, those who are, calling to, are called according to his purpose. But then that living by faith is not walking through life blindfolded. Living by faith truly is reading the word of God and being obedient to it. That's what living by faith is. Because if you live according to this book, it's going to, go, it's going to contradict your own thoughts of what you believe might be right. It's going to cause you to go to different directions that you may not be appealed to go. It's going to cause you to make decisions that you think, well, this is probably something that I wouldn't do. But however, when you live by faith, you trust and you believe that God is right and you step out in obedience and you trust Him for the results. You believe that God is right and you believe that God's way is the best way for you. Whenever we don't do that, if we have knowledge of what the Word of God says and we choose not to do it, we really truly believe that we know or that our way is better than what God's way is telling us. And that's not living by faith. Living by faith says, this is God's right, I'm wrong, therefore I'm going to be obedient to him. It's submitting your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ, submitting your life to the very word of God and living it out accordingly. Living your life, believing God's word is what living by faith truly is. I've, I've illustrated this in the past, and so I'm sure that you, many of you remember it, but it's uh, illustrated in a way of shooting the apple. Y'all remember this one? Like if you saw a guy shooting an apple, shot it 50 times right in the middle, you believe, truly, that he can hit it the 51st time, right? But very few of us would actually trust him enough to put the apple on our own head. You believe it, but you don't have enough faith. You believe it, but you choose not to act in faith. So when it comes to the word of God, when it comes to our lives, we've got to be willing to grab the apple and put it on our head and live and walk by faith. Trust God for the results. His way is the best way. Though we may not be able to see it in the future, we may not be able to see in everything, but however, I know if we trust God, we do what he says, his will, his way, and his purpose will be played out in our lives and therefore we will get the victories and be able to give God the credit for everything. Also walking faithfully is walking in love. Why do we want to walk in love? Because God is love. Everything about God is a loving God. Walking in love is living a life that is a concern for other people. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but everyone in the world minus one small detail is other people. Think about that. We should live our lives not concerned so much for ourselves, but for the well-being of other people. Living a life of love always puts other people first, and our concern should be for the others. Our concern should be for the lost and dying world that doesn't know Christ as their personal savior. And when we walk with love, we with grace, and with love and compassion, we share the truth, and we're honest with people because that's what's best for them. Though though it may put us in difficult situations, though it may may cause us to be uncomfortable, but however, if we're going to love someone, we love them the way that Jesus did. We'll tell them the truth, and we'll have their well-being in mind rather than our own discomfort. Walking faithfully with God is also having patience. It's having patience and, and exercising the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. It's having patience and exercising that hope that we have in Jesus Christ because when we walk in obedience to him and we truly live our lives um, loving the people around us, we have to understand that God is truly in control and we can rest in the sovereignty of who he is knowing that he knows the end result. We just need to be able to follow him. And sometimes that requires patience. Sometimes that requires the clinging to the hope that we have in Christ Jesus when that's all that we have. But however, we must walk in uh, faithfully with God. So far, as we prepare for an invitation this morning as our musicians come up as they prepare themselves, we've gone through what it might take for us to set our house in order. And really think about this, if you were living in your last day, what would you have to do to change for Christ's sake? What are some things that you would have to do in order for you to boldly stand before Christ and be able to say, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith? What changes would you have to make? What would, what would things, what would, what would happen, what would have to happen in order for you to be able to be like Paul and say, look, I've, I've run my course, I've finished the race, I have kept the faith? order, If you're gonna set your house in order, salvation is a must. And I'm gonna invite anyone who's never trusted Christ truly come and make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life, and surrender your life to Him. And if you've not done so, this invitation is for you. And though there may be some of you who have been saved for years and yet you've never followed the Lord in scriptural baptism, this this invitation will be for you. And child of God who is a baptized believer, if worshiping God and serving God and walking with Him has not been a priority, and you want to make a commitment this morning to do that with God, To set you straight, to get your house in order for 2019, this invitation is for you. But all in all, we've said a lot this morning, but setting your house in order is really about living your life right. It's about living your life right. Doing what God has called us to do. There's been way too many times where people have been on their deathbed, so unexpectedly. And they look back and they just think, man, I wish I could have had the time back. They look back at their life and they have regrets. Maybe not so much of the things that they did, but the things that they did not do. And I know it's that way for many Christians and believers who look back and they said, I really could have served Christ better. I could have done something more. I didn't really finish the race. I didn't really keep the faith. So we don't want to wait until it's time to die before we try to live. I'm going to close with some lyrics here from a... Um, from a Christian group the, the title is actually called We Live and it really illustrates the point of the urgency that we need to take when it comes to setting our house in order. It goes like this, there was a man who waits for the test to see if the cancer has spread yet and now he asks so why did I wait to live until it was time to die? If I could have the time back how I would live life is such a gift so how does the story end? Well, this is your story and it all depends. So don't let it become true. Get out and do what we were meant to do. The next verse goes on. It says, waking up to another dark morning, people are mourning, the weather in life outside is stormy. But what would it take for the clouds to break, for us to realize each day is a gift somehow, some way? So get our heads up out of this darkness and spark this new mindset and start to lift because it ain't gone yet. And tragedy is a reminder to take off the blinders and wake up and live the life we're supposed to take up. Moving forward with all of our heads up because life is worth living. Let's get our house in order. It's gonna require each and every one of us to make that commitment. If we're gonna make a difference and an impact with First Baptist Church. It starts with each and every one of you. So is your house in order is the question. If not, you do know how to get that started. Let's pray. Father, again, we want to thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for the givenness of Jesus Christ. We thank you so much for the commission that you've given each and every one of us to live. God, may we take seriously hold of what you have put before us. May we take seriously as your ambassadors. May we worship you you alone. May we live our lives down as a living sacrifice. It'll be wholly acceptable unto you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I meet you down front. So I'll stand.